Prestige listeners, it's Derek. Uh, with me, as always, is my friend and co-host, Danny Bessner. Uh, and we're very lucky to be joined under the circumstances uh, by Eli Clifton. Eli is a senior advisor at the Quincy Institute and investigative journalist at large at Responsible Statecraft. He is one of the go-to guys uh, for reporting on the intersection of money and U.S. foreign policy. And he's an actual friend of the pod. Uh, I know we <laughs> toss that term around a lot, but uh, we actually mean it this time. Eli, thank you so much for uh, for coming by. Thank, thank you so much for having me. So let's, I mean, let's get right to it. What in the hell is happening at the Brookings Institute? <laughs> like, what is going on here? Well, there's there's kind of what there's been a clear accusation of, and then there's the stuff that you have to kind of squint a little bit to see why it might be problematic. So the top line issue is that uh, retired Marine General John Allen, uh, who was the head of NATO forces in Afghanistan, U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan, uh, he, he has had to resign from the Brookings Institution as their president, where he has served for several years. And the reason he had to do this is that a highly unusual leak occurred in that an unsigned search warrant that I believe had been drafted by the FBI appeared on federal court's clerk system, uh, not normally something that happens. Uh, and this warrant laid out in 75 or so pages, which seems very long, but I'm not an expert at what unsigned search warrants look like, the details of allegations against uh, Allen, claiming that he had uh, to make a long story short, engaged in a secret lobbying on behalf of the government of Qatar and had done so without disclosing or registering under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which they claim he may have violated. Perhaps more seriously, they also claim that he has lied to investigators and withheld information uh, that was requested in uh, subpoenas that had been issued to him. I want to say, like, leaving aside the lying, okay, I, I get that. Who among us has not done some unlicensed lobbying for the Cuttery government, frankly? I mean, well, let well, you, he, you know, <laughs> cast the first stone. You know, it, 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 it is funny, and, and, I, and I agree, because this is obviously totally out of the realm of anything that you or I or Danny would possibly consider engaging in. But, and we can probably get into this a bit later... If I were Alan, I would actually be a little bit resentful because a lot of the people around him have probably <laughs> done something similar. And he's yeah. like, why am I being singled out for this? Uh, it should be clear, he, he denies the allegations against him. But I think this type of activity probably goes on a little more often than the general public really thinks. I think it's something that's nearly kind of an open secret in, in Washington. Now, where things get kind of really awkward here for Brookings, other than the fact that the president of their institution, the most prestigious think tank in Washington probably, was just accused of uh, potentially violating a series of federal statutes, is that Qatar has their own relationship with Brookings. They have contributed something near $30 million over 14 years in a funding relationship that only ended last year, and that spanned the time period in which Allen was associated with Brookings and was allegedly engaged in this illegal or secret lobbying. 
Now, that's a pretty bad look. Uh, now, Brookings also has say they have said, to the best of their knowledge, they are not the target of an investigation. That may well be very true. But putting aside the, the legal uh, jeopardy that Allen or potentially Brookings may or may not be in, there, there's a serious ethical problem here. And I would argue a national security problem that we simply have not talked about. And I think one of the reasons we don't talk about it is that the think tank establishment largely there are some exceptions, but largely don't want to talk about this. And what it is, is that there has been a flood of foreign money funding American think tanks, think tanks whose employees and analysts and fellows go and testify before Congress, write reports, lobby, help write laws with the inbuilt assumption from most people who consume this information that these institutions and the people who work at them are speaking from the perspective of U.S. national interest. And one has to wonder, well, we can't prove that a country like, let's say, Qatar in this case, was seeking to influence policy through Brookings. We can't prove that Brookings ever did anything on behalf of Qatar. But we still have to then sort of reflect on the fundamental question of why did Qatar give $30 million to Brookings? And why do a lot of Gulf autocracies flood, flood the coffers of Washington, D.C. think tanks? We can't prove a quid pro quo, but there's something there that raises questions. These are not philanthropies. These are countries that have distinct interests that are often quite different from the interests of the United States. Yet when you see the output of research materials that come out of these think tanks, when they talk about uh, especially uh, partnerships with countries in, in the Persian Gulf, very rarely is it acknowledged that perhaps these countries have different interests than the United States. So I have a couple more background questions for people who are not versed in the think tank community. Um, and I mean, you know, Danny, you're, you know, you study this as well. So, um, you know, I, I, I throw this up to both of you. But um, Eli, on your beat specifically, uh, can you talk a little bit more broadly about the influx of foreign money and where it's coming from? I know you mentioned the Gulf autocracies. I mean, the UAE funds uh, the Middle East Institute to, to a fair bit. I, I know that. And, um, you know, but just talk about some of the places that the money tend, is tending to come from and where it's tending to go. And, and then in general, kind of talk about, when you talk about the think tank community, I mean, what are the major players in that community or who are the major players in that community? And, you know, what kind of role have they come to play uh, in terms of U.S. foreign policy, such that you can rightly, I think, frame this as a as a potential national security issue. So let's start with the the money, and then and then talk a little bit more about like the makeup of the think tank community and their role. Sure. So I, I guess maybe I'll, I'll actually start with a little bit on the background of the think tank community, which is that we talk about think tanks like this is a defined. Uh, concept, maybe even a legal entity that maybe has a certain uh, status or code under the IRS. Um, we talk about you know nonprofits, we talk about for-profit companies, we talk about shell corporations in this way, and those all have very like distinct, uh, defined qualities that they under the IRS tax code among among other. Uh, areas that, that might define what an entity is. Think tanks don't have that. They simply don't exist in the context of being something that's legally defined. Now, what they nearly all fall under is a 501c3 designation, which is that they are nonprofit entities. Donors to them get to uh, write off their donations as a tax deduction. 
and they have to disclose some basic financial information about who they are and what they do. But as a general rule, the best way to understand... Before we continue, what is an FFRDC and how is that related to what a think tank is? That might... That might. An FFRDC. Yes, a federally funded research defense center. Isn't that a, isn't that a legal uh, body? That is, that is a class, yes. Yeah, it's operated by contractors, universities. It, it can fall under a broad set of, um, of, of legal designations. Got it. Because I, yeah. thought, I thought think tanks were sometimes categorized under... Th- yep. Yeah. Okay. They're okay. Ge- they're generally owned by the federal government, FFRDCs, if not always, uh, and they're operated by contractors that could include things like a university, a nonprofit organization, a, a corporation. I believe um, there's there's a number of different legal um, uh, designations that those could be operated under. Um, it has to do more with their relationship to the federal government than to the legal designation in terms of the actual uh, incorporation of this entity uh, under the tax code. Got it. Okay, sorry. So I just was curious about um, that. So uh, when we talk about the, there's an assumption that a 501c3 and nonprofits have to disclose a lot of information about their finances that would include their um, their their own uh, sources of, of funding and investment. And, and that is just not true. The, the, the disclosure they, they have to make shows where their money goes to, how much they pay in salaries, how much they pay in rent, how much they pay in other, in other costs that they may incur, and uh, how much money they ultimately have. There is no mandatory disclosure of where their money comes from. That is just not a component of, of this required of a 501c3. So we have to understand these are already essentially black boxes is the legal category that most think tanks would fall under, that there's very little uh, transparency uh, required of them. Now, this creates sort of a golden opportunity for foreign funders or anybody who wants to influence U.S. policy broadly. Um, and just to look at the foreign money that's flowed into think tanks, my colleague Ben Freeman uh, has cataloged this. And between 2014 and 2018, he tracked $174 million that flowed from foreign governments into U.S. think tanks in four years. That's a lot of money. And that's only the money that was voluntarily disclosed by these think tanks. There may be twice as much that was simply not disclosed because they don't have to. Now, in terms of the big players, in terms of funders, the growing uh, big players have been Qatar at Brookings, uh, the United Arab Emirates, who funds places like the Middle East Institute. They've also at times funded the Atlantic Council. Uh, Certainly there have been, uh, I believe there's been some Ukrainian money that's come into places like the Atlantic Council. But you see a variety of foreign governments investing and funding think tanks. The Center for Strategic International Studies has attracted funding from places like the Taipei Economic and Cultural Relations Office, TECRO, um, which is sort of Taiwan's de facto embassy, which has also funded think tanks like the Center for American Progress, the Hudson Institute, also Brookings, and the Center for a New American Security, CNAS. So you, you see that you know they really spread this funding around a lot. The United Arab Emirates has also funded CNAS and the Center for American Progress at different points in time. That I don't believe they do so at this at, right now. But this ebbs and flows with sort of the political winds of what's considered, I think, a, a tasteful funder and one that, that won't bring too much blowback versus those uh, that are maybe a little beyond the pale. Uh, and I think there was a distancing from some of those uh, Gulf autocrats in the wake of the Khashoggi murder, um, where you saw places like the Center for American Progress no longer wanting to take uh, UAE funding. But 
and, and I'm rambling here. I'm trying to get back to where we, to your question, which is, you know, so what does this mean for U.S. foreign policy and what's the role of think tanks in this? Right. I mean, like they're, they're spending $174 million in four years for a reason. It's not just because they have too much money on their hands. What are they buying? I, that would be my best guess. Now, what are they buying? Well, we can't always exactly say what, but what we can say is that these institutions that seem to attract a lot of foreign money and have very little transparency requirements on themselves. Again, that 174 number is probably low because there's a lot more that just people just chose never to disclose. Uh, they serve a pretty vital role, these institutions, in, in the formation of U.S. foreign policy in, in a couple respects that I would point to. Uh, these are just sort of top-line ones. There's probably a lot more we, you guys can list out. But a big one I would point out is that, is that, the, is that the, these are institutions that advise the government on U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and there's think tanks that are more associated with the Republican Party, think tanks that are more associated with the Democratic Party. So whichever party holds the, the presidency uh, or controls Congress is uh, probably has think tanks lined up that, that are regular regular advisors and they do so through issuing reports to members of Con- that are that are then presented to members of Congress and to the White House they uh, testify very often on Capitol Hill as as witnesses before congressional committees uh, and those would sort of be the advisory roles I would point to but there's another role which is that a lot of these think tanks as, as I mentioned are sort of aligned politically with one of the two political parties and that very well positions them to effectively be, uh, you know, governments in waiting. This is where people who will become officials in uh, in the next uh, uh, administration very often bide their time, make connections, publish, produce research work, uh, waiting for there to be a, a, a president or a party, political party in, in, in control of the White House and of the uh, State Department that is politically aligned with them. So this is a place where you, you can cycle in and out, effectively in and out of government, and nearly always find a, a soft landing at one of these think tanks. Again, you can then when you're there, very often be funded effectively by a foreign government whose relationship with the United States you will almost certainly have something to do with when you cycle back into government. Um, Eli, so I think those um, one, are sort of the two top line ones I would look at. One question. So um, what I find so fascinating about think tanks is that they essentially occupy a liminal space between the government and the public um, because they effectively, if, if not formally serve as the brains of U.S. grand strategy and U.S. foreign policy. Um, I was doing some research into this uh, for a bit, and my my exact memory might be a bit off, but at some point, I believe in the early 1980s, didn't Congress essentially cut its own research funding? And so now that has essentially been put into the sphere of the think tank. So they, they really do serve as the brains of the U.S. This is where the ideas of U.S. foreign policy are incubated or developed and are made, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I would say it goes probably even a little bit beyond research. That's a great, that's a great point you're making. I, I think you can extend that analogy to actual diplomacy. Um, and... You know, track two diplomacy that goes on between think tanks in various countries, as well as direct foreign government to think tank contacts and relationships that happen between U.S. think tanks uh, and embassies in Washington, as well as actual uh, travel to these foreign countries to engage in, in talks. And, and I have no doubt. I mean, I know for a fact these think tanks do report back on these conversations uh, to people who are in government. And, and, and I'm not sure if you, you can draw the exact uh, 
correlation and causation between uh, a steady decline and also funding of the State Department and the rise, rising role of these of these think tanks in in conducting what is, you know, very often essentially providing uh, recommendations on what U.S. policy should be with an understanding and an expectation that the institutions and the people who work at them have had a lot of contact with the other countries uh, whose, uh, uh, whose relationship with the United States they are actually advising on through, through their reports, testimony, uh, and so on. So this is, I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, it's, it's safe to say that at least you're buying access. And I, I mean, I think about like some other organizations, not necessarily think tanks, but you, you look at, um, you know, West Exec and these sort of consulting firms. Uh, Madeleine Albright has one. Kissinger's was the sort of uh, beginning of this. But, you know, people who are temporarily out of government, probably going to come back into government, get a chance to make some money in the private sector, and they make contacts. And those contacts then have relationships with people who are likely, if not to go back into government at the next, you know, shift of parties, uh, then at least will know people who are in the next administration. Is that, I mean, is that sort of at the bare minimum, like, I mean, you know, obviously, you don't want to get into a specific quid pro quo, that would be very hard to, to prove uh, on any given issue. But but it seems like access is the is the thing here. It's sort of the currency at the at the very basic level. I, I think I think it is, and you know, to to talk about sort of your quid pro quo point, um, you know, that, that's a really common defense that I hear from people at think tanks, especially when they've been funded by uh, various foreign governments. Is they say, yeah, but you know, I, I held these views already, and, and I'm sure people in the consulting world at places like Albright, Albright Stonebridge or West Exec or Kissinger Associates would would say the same thing, which is that you know, this money didn't change my mind. It didn't make me say or do anything I wouldn't have already done. Um, you know, I, I, you know, they chose to support the work that I do, or they chose to pay for my, for my analysis. And I, I think that th- that very often extends into the think tank space. You see the argument made that, well, yeah, but you know, you can't make an allegation that there's some, something wrong here, or that there's a problem with this foreign government money, uh, that has maybe a potential conflict of interest worth the work that's being done, because you can't prove that it changed people's minds. Uh, and I think that's a particularly weak argument because that's not the conflict of interest policy implemented anywhere um, outside of perhaps Washington D.C. Because you know I, I've looked very closely. You know when you're when you're writing for academic journals, they have a conflict of interest disclosure that you're supposed to write, and they don't ask, "Did the money change your right. mind?" That's not the question. It's you know, is there a potential conflict of interest between funding or work you may have done on the outside and the research that you are publishing on um, in this journal? And for journalism as well, the standard is, is there a potential conflict between work or financial arrangements you may have and and the work you are producing? And I think think tanks in Washington, and I would argue consultants as well, have been particular, I think, willfully naive about that because they want to make the standard be, well, prove what's in my head, um, which is, that's not a reasonable standard to use anywhere. Um, th- I mean, this is another thing that you've written about. This this extends even into uh, things like congressional testimony. I mean, inviting experts mm-hmm. to testify before committees without disclosing these kinds of relationships. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, there is... Um, uh, for starters, that there's there's 
I, I've tracked in the past that there's a shocking number of think tanks that are have their uh, employees testifying before Congress where the think tank does not disclose their funding and there's no disclosure made in the truth and testimony about about the source of funding of the think tank, which essentially boils down to that you have just dark money at the witness table. You don't know who is paying the salary really of the person who is testifying. Um, now, there's been a, there's been improvements in truth and testimony and in enforcement around it. Uh, and now I believe you have to disclose if you have uh, been the recipient of any foreign government grants or U.S. government grants. However, there's been, and this is, a, this is yet another good example of how folks in, in Washington seem to sometimes um, engage in willful naivety, and that's probably a generous way of putting it, to avoid any sort of transparency and, or accountability, is sort of the classic trick you see in truth and testimony, is let's say somebody, uh, there was an example of somebody, I think it was at, um, I want to say the Atlantic Council, who, um, who was testifying about uh, a foreign government which they had received, this individual, the, the Atlantic Council had received funding from, from this country. And when they were asked, uh, so, so, so they were listed by their Atlantic uh, uh, Council affiliation in their, in, by, the, by, the, by the committee they were testifying before. Their prepared uh, remarks were on Atlantic Council uh, letterhead, stationery. Um, and then when they were asked, who are they testifying on behalf of, they said, myself. And by doing so, they claim that they don't need to engage in any of the disclosures that they might have to about their employers funding. And time and time again, I've seen people doing this in truth and testimony where they say where everything about them is screams that they're testifying because of their affiliation or position at an institution. And then they'll just say, ah, that's really not the case. I'm testifying on my own behalf. Which, you know, might be technically true in terms of the position of the think tank and institution about whether or not they will say that these are positions that are theirs, that are, that are, that are, that are, uh, delivered by their employees in congressional testimony. But there's something very disingenuous about saying, yeah, I'm here under, under my title at this, at this institution. I'm my, <laughs> right. my, my prepared testimony is on their letterhead. Uh, and uh, that's where the line is. I no longer yeah. have anything to do with them when it comes to, but when you, you ask get, me questions about who me, I'm me. just, yeah, it's on my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah, that's a, that's a neat dodge that you get to do, I guess. Yeah, I mean, and, and to be clear, it's I don't even blame these people for doing it, but like Congress has to be get better at this. They have to start calling this out. And I think the same thing can be applied to the enforcement of the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Well, this is that was going to be my my next question. So excellent segue uh, on your part. <laughs> um, but as you as you started to get into um, earlier, it, it would be very natural for John Allen to to look around him and say. Like, why are you singling me out for this? Um, not that he would admit, you know, to actually doing anything, but but if he did, um, and that's because of the, I, I think, lax enforcement, mostly of the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Why don't we start, for people who aren't familiar, uh, explain what uh, the Foreign Agent Registration Act is and what it requires people to do. Yeah. So the, the Foreign, Foreign Agent Registration Act is 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 a law that goes back to World War II, actually, to trying to uh, have some transparency about specifically um, n n agents of Nazi Germany inside the United States in in how they were trying to influence U.S. policy. Uh, and and to, but to really reduce this law to to its essence, and obviously there's a lot more complexity here, and I'm not an attorney, but 
what it requires is that if you are the agent of a foreign principle, and the foreign principle doesn't have to be a government, it just is any foreign principle. If you are acting under as an agent of them, if they have given you any direction, you need to register with the Justice Department and essentially say, here's the nature of the work, here's the contract, and provide some semi-regular updates on the actions that you have undertaken. Um, and there's a few exceptions here, but you don't need to file. There's an academic exemption. I believe there's a commercial exe- exemption also. For instance, if you're an attorney working for a foreign company trying to negotiate um, you know, some sort of export agreement, y- y- you might not need to, to file under that. But if you're engaging with anything that touches on U.S. policy um, or the political process, this is kind of what the law was written around, is that you're supposed to disclose that. Um, and, and again, provide details of, of the nature of your arrangement with them and, and some updates. I think it's every six months where you need to provide, uh, information about what work you've undertaken. Maybe if you've published materials for them, you, you should sh- say that, hey, I did this. Um, it's pretty straightforward. And as a rule, the people who have filed under FARA, um, semi-religiously have been lobbyists and law firms in Washington. You know, I think as a rule that, that they see it as being, um, they've got nothing to hide. They don't really, you know, what, what do they care? They're, they're lobbyists. They already have to register when they're lobbying for clients who are domestic. To them, it's probably not a big deal to say, well, okay, fine, I'm going to file under FARA for my work for a foreign government. Um, again, th- th- they're not pretending that they need to have any independence um, or that that pretense is really important to their professional well-being. But there's another class of folks in Washington who I think have, again, I'm going to say, uh, willfully naive, maybe, uh, in their approach to it. And that's been the think tank community, who have consistently claimed that they do not need to file under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. There's been like one exception that I'm aware of, the Center for International Policy that that has filed. But for the most part, with all of this foreign cash sloshing around in some of the most prominent think tanks in Washington, $174 million of it in four years, probably, and again, it's more than that, None of them claim effectively that they've ever acted as an agent of these foreign principles. They've never done anything at the behest of the people who are writing them millions of dollars in checks. They've never, I guess, produced a report because they were asked to produce it. They've never written an op-ed because it was suggested to them that they should write it. I guess these grants don't have deliverables because, uh, you know, that's obviously, I guess, you know, not something they would do because that would suggest that they are somehow an agent of these foreign principles. And when pressed on it, they come up with various excuses. One is that obviously they never asked, acted as an agent. Another is that this somehow falls under the academic exemption, which is wildly, I mean, that's sort of hilarious. I mean, you're not producing, when you look at the output of the think tanks in Washington, they're not doing it for the, for the most part for the advancement of academic knowledge. They're doing it to influence policy. That's their job. Uh, these are policy research institutions. And I think that what just happened with John Allen, to bring us back to that, is that this is starting to hit really close to Brookings, to the most prominent think tank in Washington. The president of that think tank has been, a, you know, it's been suggested that this person violated the Foreign Agent Registration Act along for a funder that, for a country that happened to be the think tank's biggest funder. Um, if I was at Brookings right now, I, I would be looking pretty closely at, at the statute uh, because I, I, I think a lot of think tanks in Washington probably should be considering filing under it. 
Hello, listeners. It's producer Jake, just here for a couple of quick reminders. First things first, you may have noticed we have a new schedule, which we've already implemented. That means you're getting an interview on Tuesday, a news update on Friday, and paid subscribers get a bonus interview on Saturday. Also, Please head to our Substack, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Even if you don't want to become a paid subscriber, we have a lot of cool free content there, like videos, discussion threads, reading lists, and more. And also, you can get a free two-week trial for our bonus content to see if it's really for you. Dig through the archives, maybe stick around and participate in one of our monthly mailbags. And we have subscriber-only threads. So, AmericanPrestigePod.com. Thanks. So the other side of this to me is, you know, you have think tanks, um, you know, as you say, maybe willfully, naively interpreting this law and and deciding that they don't need to file. But the other side of this is, you know, the Justice Department's enforcement uh, of FARA and, and, you know, allowing in a lot of cases, I mean, allowing, uh, you know, think tanks to get away with this approach. I wonder... Um, there was just a recent, you know, relatively high-profile case around Faro involving Steve Wynn. Is that right? The the casino That's right. guy, That's right. yeah, uh, buddy of Donald Trump. Um, can you talk? I mean, tell you know, tell people a little bit w- about that case uh, and what's going on with that. But also, just generally, like, what is the Justice Department doing to to you know kind of chase these guys down and? Yeah. Um, when they do and the occasions when they do and I know the, the win case is sort of high profile but uh, you know at a lower profile is this just you know is there any punishment that's involved or is it just like hey can you like sign this backdated form that says you're, you know you've been acting as a foreign agent or like what's the what's the outcome for, for a lot of these cases yeah I mean I mean, the, the, certainly the, the, the fines or consequences are, 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 are relatively minor um, as the Allen case shows though that there's a potential that if you it's it's never it's never the it's never the it's never the crime it's the cover up uh, would be sort of the essence of that search warrant when you read it which is that they're claiming that he lied to federal investigators which is far more serious than violating FARA but I, the Win case is a really good example actually because because when you look at that it, you start to walk through some of the ins and outs of the Foreign Agent Registration Act that make it uh, a, a unique law and a, a little bit unusual um, now Steve Wynn is a is is a real estate developer and. And until I think fairly recently, he was uh, the head of the Wynn Casinos, which have properties in in Nevada and in Macau, among other locations. And uh, Macau is a special administrative region of China near Hong Kong. And Wynn, alongside uh, Sheldon Adelson, also actually the Republican Party, now deceased, but was the Republican Party's biggest funder, both have enormous investments in Macau. Just huge and they're depend- former friend of the podcast names, <laughs> and they are dependent on uh, their casino licenses being renewed. Those are coming up for renewal, um, and they. So there's always been this speculation that there is pressure on them to that may or may not be be real, but there's speculation that there's pressure from from Beijing to get these guys to at least help give voice to their to their views. In, in in the Republican Party at the bare minimum and, and with Donald Trump. And and actually what the federal government is claiming, in my understanding of the case against Steve Wynn, is they're claiming that actually he was representing Chinese government interests um, within the Trump administration uh, because of his uh, uh, investments in, in China. Now, he denies it 
to be clear. I, I should I should say that. And uh, and and but one of the keys here is that ferret is one of well, it's one of the only laws I know of where you have to to know about it to be prosecuted for violating it. <laughs> And that's called, and it's called a willfulness clause within FARA. And the way that this is typically handled is the Justice Department sends you a letter. <laughs> and the letter basically says, we think you should probably file under FARA. And this is us informing you about that law. <laughs> and, you know, what you do from there is your own choose your own adventure. In the case of Steve Wynn, he decided that he was going to fight this and said, absolutely not. Um, and now the Justice Department is suing him to try to force him to file under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. Um, but this is, you know, I think this is a great example of how ferret enforcement, there has been an uptick in ferret enforcement. It, there have been only a handful of prosecutions under it. A lot of them have actually been plea bargains that people have pled down far more serious charges like, you know, espionage uh, to down to FARA, uh, because it is a slap on the wrist. But it, um, I, I think there is a heightened interest in it. I think the Justice Department is showing uh, a greater interest in prosecuting it. And, and I think, and I've gotten kind of the sense that there perhaps is a growing interest from Congress and perhaps even uh, from the National Security Council in looking more critically at the various ways in which foreign governments have been able to, uh, with no transparency or very little transparency or accountability, uh, gain footholds through the, through the think tank community in Washington. Is that, is that a development that um, predates Trump or is that a Trump-influenced thing? It feels like a lot of official Washington kind of woke up to the possibility of somebody being compromised or, uh, you know, of, of somebody being bought off or, or you know, under the influence in the Trump years. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if that's, uh, if, and you, you know, you've covered this a lot longer than that. It, it, was this actually happening before Trump or is this something, you know, already, I mean, even with, with Biden, it feels like we've kind of, kind of shrugging our shoulders at the same thing. Uh, I talked about, I mentioned West exec earlier. I mean, the fact that you have uh, the secretary of state and like half the foreign policy uh, personnel in the Biden administration coming out of this one consultancy and you, you don't say, Hey, gee, maybe we should look at that consultancy's client list and just make mm -hmm. sure that nothing's going on. It, it feels like, um, you know, in, in, a, in a little bit, in some ways it's, it's a, it's a Trump thing, but maybe, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. No, I, 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 Starters, I should say, I, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors at the NSC or at the Justice Department. However, from all outward appearances, there has been a huge uptake uh, that I think occurred during or interest in this that occurred during the course of the Trump administration. And I, we can speculate about why that might be. I think that probably, you know, there's always this quality that the Trump administration maybe wasn't doing that many things that other administrations uh, didn't do, but they, they were just sloppier or more brazen with it. Um, and foreign governments Dumber, have always wanted, yeah, and foreign governments have always, I think, wanted to have that degree of influence. Who wouldn't? Um, especially when the United States is, you know, in many off cases, very active in the regions in which these governments operate, uh, and, and provide a lot of, um, militaries, uh, backing to them, uh, through a variety of means. So I, I think that 
the this has probably always gone on. I think there has been, and I've ri- been writing about it since before the Trump administration, but I think there has been uh, an uptick in these prosecutions and these investigations. And, you know, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I, a lot of what went on with Russiagate was was pretty harmful, I think, to the discourse. There was a lot of uh, overstating of facts no, around that. No. Um, what? But, but <laughs> if there's a silver lining, um, I don't think Americans have ever, frankly, given much of a damn about, about foreign influence in any really meaningful way. I mean, I guess... Well, Formation of Pharaoh was a time when we cared about it. The Red Scare. And there was the Red Scare. But but I would say I'm worried about Americans. It's not not good history with that. With Americans, if you, yeah, if you wave that particular flag, you can you can get a lot of people. But it's tended to go after it's tended to go after individuals and groups. Um, It hasn't gone after actually the levers of power to the same degree that these think tanks operate in them. True, it's Uh, never done that. In fact, yeah. Yeah, it's never done that. It's been about targeting individuals with certain beliefs or yeah, qualities exactly. or skin colors or religions. Yeah, or sexuality. Um, They're scared as or well. Sexuality. Brutal, yeah. And and that and that's been hugely harmful. But I do think that is quite different than what we are seeing right now with an interest in some of the most elite institutions within Washington and the way that they've been operating yeah. with very little accountability or oversight. It's a very it's a it's a very different quality, that's that's for sure. Um, well, for anybody who's um, on the Trump 2024 train, uh, we'll get to do this with the Kushner Fund and the $2 billion that the Saudis have socked into it. That'll be the next uh, uh, next foreign influence. <laughs> oh, this country scandal. is so corrupt. It's so corrupt. <laughs> My word. Well, I mean, the Qataris, the Qataris outright bought or they, they invested in that like dead Fifth Avenue property that the Kushner family owned. I mean, that was the most brazen act like oh. in, of anything that took place in the Trump administration. Was that 666 Fifth uh, Avenue? Yeah, 666 Fifth Avenue. The, the yeah. Qataris just like, we're like, here, uh, we know you're hurting on this. Take some money and, and shore up your investment. Uh, it was just like so, so out there. I mean, I, I, know, I know this is an unpopular take here, but I, I guess I would also, you know, unpopular takes are the fun ones. Washington is really cheap. You know these people. Oh, assuming yeah. these foreign oh, governments yeah. know. The, assuming these foreign governments yeah. know what, like, what the clearing price is for, <laughs> for for the influence market. I mean, I'm speculating here, but if that's their perspective, and as foreign governments with their own sets of interests, they should know that. Um, they must be continually astounded by how little they are paying. Yeah, uh, and, and getting so much. Listen, right. yeah, anyone it's staggering. listening, it's staggering. we're very cheap it really too. Is. So if anyone wants to buy us off, we come very cheap. Oh, <laughs> uh, we have our rates are. Let excellent. us know. Just yeah. email very, us. Yeah, very, very affordable, reasonable price. We have a sliding scale. Oh, easy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and and the best part is, if you file under FARA, you get to disclose the contract size, so you can actually sort of have an open bidding market. Oh, we yeah, should do that. We should, you should register. <laughs> See, that's <laughs> the case for transparency. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the closest um, to unionization you're going to get for foreign agents. <laughs> Derek tried to unionize once and I, I threatened him out of it. He, so. Yeah, he uh, he shut it down. Intimidated quick, you. So. <laughs> no chance of that. Uh, and and the, the time we have left, I, I want to stay with the think tank community, but switch gears a little bit because foreign money isn't the only area of concern here. I think the relationship between think tanks and defense contractors is something else that needs to be yep. talked about. It's something that you've written about. Um, can you kind of delve into that story, which is not 
only about funding. It's also about, uh, you know, people getting board seats and, you know, Raytheon or, you know, whomever, uh, you know, getting a seat on the board and, and earning some money. And, you know, uh, again, it's, it's oftentimes a government and waiting type of thing. But can you talk about the uh, sort of the relationship between the defense industry and, and think tanks in, in a broad sense? Yeah, it, it's huge. They're everywhere. They fund most think tanks. Uh, it's, it, it's hard to even pick out individual ones because they are so omnipresent. I mean, we've talked about you know, the foreign governments seem like they're everywhere. They're not compared to the handful of you know, the top five defense contractors in the United States. The, the, their funding is just across the board, it seems like. Um, it, it's really astonishing. And, you know, this goes to... Uh, a point that yeah, that Ben Freeman and I tried to make in a, in a paper we wrote, largely a, that focused on foreign funding at think tanks. But w- we talked about the fact that th- th- we were trying not to say, hey, you shouldn't take money from X or Y place. Because um, while maybe individual think tanks, and I know at Quincy, we, we've talked about, hey, we're not going to take foreign government funding. We think that, that for us, that's not good for our, uh, for our brand and for the integrity of our work. Um, but you know, I, I I think that hey, you know, if you're a th- if you're a think tank that specializes in um, you know technological innovations in the aerospace industry and um, and promoting the export of U.S. weapons and that's your thing, then yeah, sure, go take money from defense contractors. I guess like that's not inherently a problem. What I would like to see is is some basic standards emerge in the think tank community. One is that they should have to disclose who funds them. Just full stop. Just disclose your biggest funders. Uh, we're not going to get into which kind of funders you should or should not disclose, uh, but just like all of them, <laughs> I think would be a good place to start. And the second is identify when the work that you're producing may have a potential conflict of interest with one of your major funders. Um, this is a standard that we were talking about earlier that's used, and you see it in academic journals, you see it in journalism. It's not that complicated. It's just, you know, if you're speaking about exporting uh, F-35s and why you think that would be a good idea to export them to, you know, the UAE or something... Um, maybe you should mention if you're also receiving funding from the UAE or Lockheed Martin. Um, it's, it's, it's as basic as that. And I think it's kind of shocking, uh, but maybe it's because I also am a little naive. When you see how much work is being produced by think tanks that are funded heavily by weapons firms that are advocating either for increased U.S. defense spending, for a hawkish U.S. policy in the world and global primacy, which inherently will require more weapons and a bigger defense budget, or for the export of sophisticated, expensive weapon systems and for Congress to approve those exports, because these are exports that would require congressional approval for uh, weapon systems produced by funders of, of, of the research itself. Um, I mean, th- those are really, I think, sort of some rudimentary bottom lines. I, I know these sound overly simplistic, uh, but it's shocking what a detached attitude toward ethics, transparency, and conflict of interest avoidance you see inside the beltway versus outside. Well, that's the thing. I mean, they're, they're, they're simplistic because that's how low the bar is for actually doing exactly. anything about exactly. this stuff. Like, they, this, they can't even meet uh, these very basic seeming, you know, standards or principles uh, or, or things that, that could be done to increase transparency. So it's, uh, it is shocking. I mean, I read, you know, the stuff that you write and I'm just like, they're not already doing that. Like what, what, what is going on here? Um, just routinely it's, it's, uh, it's a stunning thing. Um, uh, I guess to try to wrap up on a, 
positive note. I don't know. We don't do positive notes <laughs> here, so I'm I'm a little uh, and I don't know that that there's uh, I don't know. I mean, this is still a fairly um, you know fairly early in the game, I guess. But you wrote uh, yesterday uh, at Responsible Statecraft about a new. Uh, piece of legislation, the Fighting Foreign Influence Act, um, that could start to get at some of these issues uh, from a congressional yeah. perspective. Can you talk a little bit about what it is? Um, what do you, do you think? What you think the chances are that it's actually going to, you know, make it to become law? And uh, if it if it did become law, how how effective would it be at addressing some of the stuff that we've talked about? Yeah, so this is a fascinating piece of legislation. I, I don't want to handicap its odds. It, it was just introduced yesterday. Um, okay. It's, but okay. it is a it, it is enough. a bipartisan. Uh, it has bipartisan support. Um, it was sponsored by our, our Congressman Jared Golden from uh, from from Maine, and uh, it, it sort of has this this legislation. I, I think has sort of three three or so main components. Uh, the first is that it would require tax exempt organizations, including think tanks. Notice that they said tax-exempt organizations because think tanks don't have the uh, its own sort of st- status or, or defined quality um, uh, to disclose large contributions from foreign governments, foreign political or foreign political parties, um, which would at least start to get at the essence of think tanks that have just refused to disclose this information. Um, it would uh, impose a lifetime ban on former U.S. military officers, presidents, vice presidents, and senior executive branch officials, um, and members of Congress from lobbying for foreign principles. Uh, I know that seems kind of obvious, but there are a shocking number of former members of Congress who uh, effectively went through the revolving door to lobby for foreign countries. Um, and I think a lot of the criticism of that has been that, well, if you're eyeing your next job being working for a foreign country, you might not be representing the interests of your constituents, let alone the United States, uh, while you're doing your current job as a member of Congress, if you're trying out for, for your next career. And it would require political campaigns to verify that online donations by, paid by credit card can be at least, at least that card can be tied to a valid U.S. address. C- kind of rudimentary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's like, hey, could, could you, but again, this do, is where the bar is. To tie this money, like maybe loosely to the United States. Uh, <laughs> so, so that's where the bar is, and you know, it's like I want, I would like there to be more, but I see this as being at least an acknowledgement that hey, uh, people on both sides of the aisle here for their own reasons, and I'm not saying some of this isn't politically motivated, but you know, th- th- they can agree that they share some basic concerns, uh, and that there might be some. These are, to me, look really common sense. These are like, seem pretty basic. I, I don't personally see any problem with any of these if they were implemented into law. And um, so I, I think it's an exciting thing. I think, that, say, the fact that there are, uh, you know, uh, members of Congress ranging from like Lance Gooden from Texas to Katie Porter in California, you know, a far right Republican, uh, a pretty progressive Democrat uh, uh, sponsoring it are, are all really, really, really good signs. Foreign exchanges is bringing people together from across the aisle to, <laughs> on on these common sense reforms. Okay, um, so on that note, let's let's end here because anything else that we talk about is going to be another downer, and I feel like this is a rare 
opportunity to say maybe yeah, maybe things will get marginally better. Who knows? Uh, I do think things are that, getting better. You have the Justice okay. Department actually showing an interest in FARA. You have Congress actively showing an interest in the think tank sector and in the revolving door for former members of Congress to work for foreign countries. Um, whether or not any of this you know really gains traction and makes a difference, I think we have to wait and see. But I do think we're getting more action, more attention, and more concern about this than we've seen in certainly the the time that I've been writing on this, and I've been I guess writing on this for oh my god for uh, for <laughs> a while 2000, now, for yeah, 2005. I can, I can so, that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Eli Clifton of the Quincy Institute. Uh, if this is if these are issues that concern you then you absolutely should be following Eli's work at Responsible Statecraft. Uh, thank you again for coming on the program. And uh, it, I'm sure we will have you back because this is a never-ending uh, issue in, in D.C. So there will be more scandals, no doubt, to come. No doubt. And uh, keep up the great work, Danny and Derek. This has been great. Thank you.